Uh, I'll say at, at various points uh, over the years, I've, I've had a variety of different jobs. I haven't always uh, done this, but when you, when you get to a job, you realize that there are always parts of a job that you either didn't realize that you'd be doing or didn't realize that you'd be doing quite so much. Um, I remember a number of years back when I was a, a younger man, I was getting into carpentry, and I remember my first day showing up on the job site, and I had my tape measure, and I had my hammer, and I was just ready to build stuff. And I got there, and they're like, sweet, here's a broom. <laughs> and me and that broom got intimately acquainted for that first year on the job site before they, they trusted me to, to build it very much. And, and so I didn't think I was going to be a professional sweeper, but I was. In my current job, I, I work with youth as... Uh, as I mentioned, I spend a lot more time shopping for food for my students than I do for my own family, um, which is probably for the benefit of my family. But I am intimately acquainted with the chips and cookies aisles at Walmart, Safeway, and Fred Meyers. And I often find myself saying things that I'm not proud that I know, like, I didn't know Fred Meyers was now carrying the double stuff birthday cream Oreos and things like that. So. <laughs> Youth ministry, it's a hoot. Um, one thing that I find myself doing uh, sort of more, that I didn't really expect to do and, and find myself doing fairly often is I write a lot of letters of recommendation uh, for students for various things. Uh, I've written letters for students trying to get into the National Honor Society. I, I just wrote one uh, for a Boy Scout that was attaining his Eagle Scout and needed a, a recommendation for that. And I've done recommendations for, for numerous job opportunities and at this point, I assume that my students that go on uh, to college, um, that they basically only got in because of the quality of recommendation that I wrote for them. Um, every time one of my students gets into college, I hear that they got a certain scholarship, and I wrote them a letter of recommendation, a little part of me goes, I did that. You know, so I, I hope that you can see that, that I, I often don't believe that to be true. Um, but there's challenges in writing a good letter of recommendation, Right? There, there's a balance. You, you want to bring the person's desirable characteristics to the forefront, but you don't want to be so over the top that it sounds unauthentic, right? And I actually have learned to, to really enjoy writing these letters of, of recommendation because it forces you to think about the person and what do you admire about them? What do you appreciate about them? What do you see about them and their value that is unique and different maybe from, from just everyone else? Uh, and so this morning, we're going to see Paul as he gives some letters of recommendation, and he's going to point us to two examples of some godly men that Paul thinks that we should act like. As we work our way through Philippians chapter 2, we're going to get to the end of the chapter uh, this morning, and we're going to hear these praises and recommendations for Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, and, and he's encouraging um, the admiration of them to the Philippian church. Uh, and that there is a lot that we can learn uh, from these two men this morning. Um, our passage today, though, we're going to start a, a little bit before that. It's going to pick up in verse 12, if you have your Bible and you do want to follow along. Uh, it's kind of a hinge section that connects us back to where we left off uh, if you were here last week. Um, but picking up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, says this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The first thing that we we highlight here that Paul is saying is that he challenges them to emulate the example of Christ. Verse 12 starts off with a therefore, as we were reminded the the week before. It's a linking term that takes us back to, to what it's connecting us to, what was just said. And I will say, before sort of binge watching and streaming TV shows in chronological order was sort of the norm, back in the day, it was more common that a drama or sort of a story-focused show would start with a previously on, and it would give you some of the big picture ideas of what was going on so that you had the context to deal with whatever was going to happen in the episode you were watching. I feel like when we're reading Paul, we're constantly being reminded previously on the Apostle Paul here in chapter two, and his, his, his arguments build and they're layered and he hates the period. So the, the sentence and the thought just continues on and continues on. So I'll say previously on Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul gave us the verse that Eric suggested that we memorize, highlighting the need for personal humility and an emphasis on finding the value in others in an effort to love them. Paul proved his point with a beautiful passage that many of you know about Jesus as this living demonstration of what these qualities of humility actually look like in actual sacrificial service to others. You see, Jesus lived humility, and he did it in a way that didn't devalue himself, but lifted up others. And it was a demonstration of his greatness and a reason for us to worship him. Eric summed up last week with this statement, relate to one another in gospel humility as Jesus demonstrated. So that was our previously on that we're picking up here this morning. But if those statements are true, Paul's going to give us some uh, instructions on how we should respond to the example that we see in Jesus. And he's going to point us to the need for continued obedience. Verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he uses a phrase that might catch some of you um, off guard a little bit, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to, to work out our salvation? That doesn't sound much like what we expect from Paul. And how does this line up with what Paul tells us elsewhere? And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know Paul's kind of the grace guy, right? That's kind of his brand. That's kind of his thing. And that makes him saying, work out your salvation almost makes as much sense as me using a fly fishing metaphor, right? It doesn't, that's not your thing. Or me preaching in long pants. Like that just isn't how it works here. Like we know what to expect, Paul's the guy that says this famously in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Then we hear Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and you're like, that just doesn't sound right to my ear. 
Maybe this sounds a little bit more like James, if you're familiar with the writings of James. He provides a balance about not just talking about what we believe, but but actually demonstrating the legitimacy of our faith through actions and the importance of that. James counters with this. Well, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, James is not telling us to work for our salvation, but he is reminding us that faith is not just an an intellectual position that we get to, but if we have genuine faith and, and God has changed us to our very core, it will show up in our actions and our behavior. So we sort of have Paul and James as these kind of sideboards of of what grace is and what faith is. Where's this instruction to to work out your salvation? Where does it fit in that? How does it fall in line with the, the other things that we have been told in Scripture? And I will tell you, Paul is not saying to work for your salvation. That would be contrary to the message of the Bible. But he's telling the Philippians... Basically, since you are saved, act like it. Since we're saved, let's knock it off and actually start following the example of Jesus. That's what he means when he's telling you to work out your salvation. We actually need to emulate the way that Jesus lived. Christianity isn't just a philosophy or a theory. It's a way of life. It's not just about a set series of facts that we memorize. It's the day-to-day way that we actually go about our life. See, for Christians, words like obedience and humility, they're, they're not just words that we whip out at Bible study or small group discussion. They are actually the ways that we are called to live our lives. In humility, we are called to obey and live out what, what, what God gives to us, demonstrating the genuineness of our faith to the world around us. And Paul gives us um, a particular set of instructions in verse 14 and 15 that I, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, in verse 14, he tells us this, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So he gives the instruction, and he follows it up with the reason. Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, I will confess my own personal um, understanding of Greek is limited, and and I appreciate it as Pastor Eric admitted his own deficiencies in Greek. Uh, The other week, I will say someday I hope to grow up to be as deficient as he is if I keep working at it. Uh, Me and English have a difficult enough relationship over the years, if you've ever spoken with me, and... um, Second languages, uh, let's not bring that into the equation. But I did a word study. I, I can do that, right? And, and I thought, what is Paul actually saying here in verse 14? And I'm going to share with you uh, something that took me countless hours to, to conclude. When Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, he means this. If you are a follower of Jesus, he means you. Me, as a follower of Jesus... He means me. If you are a follower of Jesus, we are called to stop complaining and to stop arguing. 
Our circumstances are not so nuanced and unique that this direct instruction from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is rendered null and void in your life and my life. As Christians, we're told by Paul to live lives that don't include grumbling or arguing. So here's my deep question for you this morning. Can you and will you? I'm a fan of this passage. Uh, actually, if you uh, have ever been in my home, we actually have verse 14 uh, hanging on the wall. Uh, and so I like uh, this reminder to not grumble or argue or complain. Um, but I, I hadn't kind of in my mind connected it with the, the verse 15 that actually has a tie-in into the Old Testament we'll talk about here. There's a quotations that you see uh, in verse 15. And, and I would just say it's one of the things that I find amazing as, as we read our scriptures. And I feel like I know it fairly well, but I realize there, there's so much more still to learn. But we see these connections that, that we grow into as we continue to spend time in them. But this section in verse 15 is, is a reference back to Deuteronomy 32 and actually the nation of Israel, that if you are familiar with your Bible, can we just say Israel had a bit of a reputation for being whiny? (laughs) And God repeatedly had to give them a simple instruction, knock it off? So so Paul is using this phrase, children of God without fault in a a warped and, and crooked generation. He's actually quoting back to Deuteronomy 32, so those that knew their Old Testament would have heard that. He says, do you really want to repeat the failures of Israel all over again? Because see, when you read the account of the Israelites in the wilderness, do you find yourself going, they seem like sensible people, reasonable. We probably should act just like they acted, right? I hope not. (laughs) I think we are supposed to read the accounts of the Israelites in in the wilderness and the formation of the nation. I think we're supposed to go, wow. If God can love them and work through them and their brokenness, even with all of my junk, I bet God could use me too. That's what the example of the Israelites is for. And so as Christians, we are told not to complain and argue, not just because God tells us not to, which should be enough, but as the point that Paul emphasizes, attitude matters because the world is watching. The world is watching how Christians respond to things. Can we just be honest uh, for a moment here together and and, and admit that there are some times that it's embarrassing to be a Christian? That that other Christians have done and said things that you're like, oh, that's embarrassing. It turns out the world is looking at us, and if we claim to be followers of Jesus, it turns out that they notice when we choose not to act like it. And this world is desperately searching for something that is authentic, something that is genuine. And you would think, hopefully, that the church would be a safe place to find that. But I will tell you, far too many Christians spend far too much time grumbling and arguing, either in person or online or behind someone's back. And when non-Christians see it, who can blame them when they say, no thank you to what Christianity has to offer. Because see, the world is looking at us to see if we really live like we claim to believe. I'll add just kind of a a side note. uh, As as a youth pastor, if you're a parent, um, your kids are looking at you with that same question to see if you really live like what you're taught from the scriptures. 
You really live like what Jesus tells you to do. Are you willing to actually act like what Jesus acted like? Uh, I, get to, to, I get to read a lot of books uh, about teenagers, next generation, and, and kind of that uh, sort of thing. Uh, and, and spent a long time lately just kind of focusing on this, this current generation of students and the troubles they face and the, the differences in the world around them. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read uh, any of those books, the, the teenagers now live in a different world than those of us that are older grew up in, right? It's not the same game. They don't face the same set of challenges. And so I remember sort of thinking back to when I was growing up as a, as a teenager, it seemed like all of the, the, the thoughts, the things that we had to do as Christians was, does the Christian worldview make sense? That was kind of the big question of the day. And can we defend the authority and authenticity of the Bible? And can we prove a historical Jesus? And are we equipped to answer the questions that people have about Christianity with compelling answers? And we spent a lot of time having those kinds of conversations. And it was a very sort of factual, argument-based understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And those are good things. And I hope that we continue to, to grow in those but they're starting to see with this current generation that that's not what they're looking for. See, they have the world at their fingertips. They have information in their pocket, in the palm of their hands. And teachers have changed their roles, who used to be the givers of information, and now they're they're sort of the gatekeepers and guides to the information that is already out there. And so students can go look up whatever they want for themselves. They don't want to know if Christianity is factually true, They're asking questions of, does it actually change you? Is it real for you? Is Christianity something that we come and do for an hour together on a Sunday morning? Or is it something that shapes you, molds you, and motivates you to your very core? Is it authentic for you? What good is it to agree to it in our mind if it doesn't change how you live? See, in our modern culture, apologetics without authenticity doesn't cut it in this world anymore. We're given instructions here by Paul, don't complain, don't argue, so that the world will see. You want to make Christ shine? You want to make his bride, the church that he loves, a great place to be? Here's some simple instructions. Commit to not complaining. Commit to not arguing. Commit to getting along with others. Commit to, in humility, considering others better than yourself. Because if that's the type of community that we can foster here in an authentic way, we're going to run out of seats. Amen? If we can avoid being the kind of people that hear Paul's challenge and then argue over where we go to lunch on the way home, could Can we maybe try that as as a step one? It's the little stuff, right? If the challenge from last week was to memorize Philippians 2, uh, 3, and 4, the challenge for this week is to actually put it into practice. First job, put it in your mind. Job two, put it in your heart. And then job three, actually do it on a daily basis. What does it look like to live in humility uh, in your life and in your context? Paul gives this argument, that's kind of what the, the middle part of this, this chapter is, and, and, and explains to them what they should be doing, and, and, but he recognized that it's a great teaching tool to be able to point to somebody, 
someone that they can look at, someone that they can relate to, and, and that they can see these humble qualities actually lived out. And so that's where we get into kind of the, the letters of recommendation uh, part of the, the messages. Paul points to two men, two individuals that demonstrated these qualities that he was telling the Philippians to emulate. So the first one is, is this, Paul praised Timothy for his concern for others. Picking up in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul's encouragement was that what he was asking of them was actually possible. That they didn't need to look any further for proof than from the person of Timothy and his example. He points to Timothy as an example of someone that has been radically transformed by God's grace and is living it out for others that he comes into contact with. Because see, sometimes we can realize that something is actually possible while fully believing that it isn't possible for us. You know what I mean by that? Like, is, is there any chance for me that if I just put in a bit more time in the gym and sneak a few less late-night potato chips, that I can look like the movie star of the rock? Like, is that in the cards? That's not funny that you laughed at that. That was... <laughs> I have feelings, people. Um, is it possible? I mean, technically, I think there's muscles under here somewhere. It's been a while since I've seen them. But I doubt I'm ever going to have that shoulder thing that goes from here to, like, the bottom of his ears. Like, I don't... I guess I was just blessed with a neck. I don't know if I'm just different, but... I don't think I have the DNA quite for that, but... If someone told me, like, hey, just work out and you could be like The Rock, I'd be like, yeah, but I really won't. <laughs> but then maybe, maybe I see an example of somebody closer to me, more similar uh, to me. Maybe I'm watching a friend and he starts making more thoughtful decisions about what he's eating. I start seeing him exercising more regularly and I begin to see changes in his health over time and Regardless of kind of my genetics, like I, I start to go, I don't know, I probably could do that, right? That example I can connect with. So previously, Paul was telling us, emulate Jesus, act like him, be like Jesus. How many of us, when we heard that, were like, yeah, but I won't. <laughs> I know me. I, I know my shortcomings. I, I know my habits and my patterns. And if the goal is Jesus, I failed when I woke up today right? But could I be like Timothy? I don't know. I think maybe I could be like Timothy, right? Maybe when I look at others, I, I, I could choose to love them, even when it's costly and inconvenient. The temptation's always going to be to be self-absorbed, but like Timothy, it's possible to be about the interests of other people, to be about loving them because that's what Jesus would do for them. And, and not just by white-knuckling it, effort, making it happen. These things happen. We, we begin to live this out as we get to know God better. It happens as we let the Holy Spirit actually change us 
and shape us and mold us from the inside. It it happens as we live in Christian community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we get to see demonstrations of it from them and, and have opportunities to live it out ourselves as well. It happens as God empowers us, as we're told in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. But it's not something that's thrust on us. It's not forced on us against our will, but, but God offers us opportunities and circumstances and situations that, that we can choose self-centered or others-focused. And I will tell you, if Timothy can do it, so can you. Our passage wraps up uh, with the second recommendation here in verse 25, and Paul prays to Epaphroditus for his commitment to the gospel. Verse 25 says this, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give." So we see Epaphroditus showed his commitment to the gospel, but it was not necessarily the commitment that he thought that he was making. There's a way of reading the story of Epaphroditus where we could conclude that he was a failure. He set out to accomplish a goal, to to, to minister to and, and with the Apostle Paul. But apparently we learned that he didn't lick enough doorknobs as a kid and had a weak immune system. And so Paul had to send home the sickly kid with his tail between his legs. Maybe that's your reading of Epaphroditus. Was he a failure? I don't know. Some might conclude yes. I remember being in high school and I had an English teacher my junior year and we were sort of reading through the American classics and and it felt like every single discussion ended up back on this idea of the American dream. And this teacher just kept talking about over and over again and, and pointed to sort of this American mentality that's sort of been fostered for generations of how Americans pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Have you heard this before? And I just remember sitting there thinking about this concept of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps going, that's not what I learned in physics in fifth, grade, in fifth period. Like, that's not how that actually works. And what is your obsession with boots? I don't think people wear boots as often anymore. I don't wear boots. Am I not an American? Do I have to, be, have to wear boots to be an American? She just kept coming back to this. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's the American dream. She she pushed this, Americans get it done, and it's built into our DNA. And I will tell you, if Americans generally have this idea that we get it done, how much more so do Alaskans have that idea? It takes a certain kind of hubris to live in a place like this. Months of darkness and sub-zero temperatures. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself for a moment, did God really intend for human life to flourish here? To which the Alaskans in the room respond, yes, for the tough people, right? We take pride in our ability to get it done, to survive. 
And we look around this room and we know some of you will leave. And when you do, we'll call you quitters. <laughs> but we have the courtesy to wait until you cross the Canadian border. We all know the rules, right? Now, I'm not here to advocate for the rightness and more likely the, the wrongness of that mentality, but I am here to warn us of how ideas like that can begin to infiltrate our Christian lives. How many of us approach the idea of our Christian lives with that same get-it-done-at-all-costs mentality? We set out for a goal and we won't let any obstacle get in the way. And it could be a very good goal, it could be a very God-honoring goal, but we're met with resistance, with a challenge. So what do we do? We double down, right? We try harder, we pray harder, and did I mention we try harder, right? I don't know if that makes us an American or an Alaskan or just a human, but I would suggest to you to consider that it takes more courage to be an Epaphroditus Someone who trusts that God is leading through a variety of circumstances, all the time, even when the plans are different than we expected. Do we give God the flexibility to move us, to, to challenge us in one direction for a time, and then to shift our focus in another direction as he sees fit? Because for Epaphroditus, a change of plans did not mean failure. Doesn't God work through those situations too? Can we trust that a closed door is part of his plan as well? And look at the, the way that Paul describes him. Paul calls him his brother, his coworker, his fellow soldier, and he encourages the Philippians to welcome him home with great joy and honor. See, Epaphroditus wasn't a failure. He was brave enough and obedient enough to try. I don't get the sense that he had to beat out dozens of other volunteers to make a risky uh, journey from, from Philippi to, to where Paul was. But he selflessly did it, put his life on the line, and he got pretty close to that line. And, and Paul sends him home as a fellow soldier committed to the work of the gospel. So he holds up Epaphroditus and says, you want to know what it looks like to live all in for the gospel? Look at my brother. Look at my coworker. Look at my friend. Look at my fellow soldier. Look at Epaphroditus. Because the gospel is lived out in small things. Humility. Valuing someone else. Not arguing even though we might be right. Not complaining even though we think we could have done it better holding our plans open-handed and actually letting God work through our successes and our perceived failures. I don't know if it's the American in us or the Alaskan in us or just the humanity in us, but we tend to see the idea of sort of being sold out for the gospel, living all for, for Jesus as these big, grandiose moments of obedience and sacrifice. But it's really not. My reading this week, I came across uh, an illustration from an old preacher. Uh, his name was Fred Craddock. Uh, and he put it well, and, and he said it this. So I was just going to read uh, his illustration to you guys. To give my life for Christ appears glorious, he said. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. 
We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But the reality is that for most of us, he sends us to the bank and he has us cash in that $1,000 bill for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and, and 50 cents there listening to the neighborhood kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost, going to a committee meeting, giving a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home, 25 cents at a time. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in those little acts of love. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. My question for you, where are you going to give out 25 cents of love this week? Where is God calling you to sacrifice as an act of love on behalf of his beautiful gospel? Because see, when the gospel really transforms us from the inside out, we begin to live and to love like Jesus. And we can value others and, and their needs and not just meet our own. And we can grow in gospel-centered character as we obey the example of Jesus. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these instructions. And um, just remind us in our hearts that it is not by our power that this is accomplished, Lord. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're determined. It's not because we're skilled and valued in ways that others aren't. But Lord, you use the broken things of this world. And by that, I mean Christians to bring grace and love and humility to others. And so, Lord, that is our call. That is our task. And so my, my hope and my heart for myself and for, for those here that we would live with eyes open to see the opportunities, that we would have not our hands clutched to a $1,000 bill, but quarters in our fingers ready to give love and spend it as you provide opportunity. Heavenly Father, what a transformation that would make in our own hearts and in the world that we interact with. We ask for your help. Do this through us. In Jesus' name, amen.